Good morning. Merry Christmas, Northland. Thank you, Bradley, for the invite to greet one another. It's good to see the life in the room. It's wonderful. So, you know, I heard an ancient story uh, out there about this Jewish man who had a large family and a small house, and he was really wrestling with with that situation. So goes to his rabbi and says, "Uh, Rabbi, what do I do? And the rabbi says, I I know what you should do. Uh, You know, you have goats, right? The guy says, yeah, I have some goats. Take one of your goats and bring it into your house. Let it live with your family like a member of the family. So... And then come talk to me in a week. So the guy starts and tries that, comes back a week later, and, and he, his eyes are bloodshot. He's all disheveled. And Rabbi says, how's it going? He says, horrible. The goat ate my couch. My family is fighting. There's mess all over the floor. This, it's terrible. Rabbi says, don't worry. I want you to move the goat back outside. Come talk to me in a week about how things are going in your house. And so a week later, you can see where this is going. The guy comes back. The rabbi says, how are you? And he says, great. Everything's going wonderful. Our house feels bigger than ever before. We're not fighting. We're all so happy. It's all about your perspective, isn't it? And you know, for my family, our situation with the goat or or whatever that might be in our household was actually that we thought it would be a great idea entering Christmas season a week ago to start potty training our one-year-old twins. And so we started doing that. We had a bit of a stressful 48 hours. They learned a lot. But we said at the end of that two days, you know what, why don't we go back to diapers for a little while? And going back to diapers felt like kicking the goat out of the house. And so we are at peace. We're so happy. Everything's wonderful in our home. Even though it's a busy home, it feels great right now. You know, I say all that for a reason. We're in this Christmas season, and we all tend to do this thing in this time of the year where we have maybe some time off of work, but we're planning travel, we're buying gifts, and then we go, I've got some extra time, so I'm going to take on three different home improvement projects, and we try to cram it all in. And maybe the invitation from God today is to actually just stop and slow down. Maybe literally as you look at your calendar for the next three weeks to simplify so that you can rest in the love of God that we celebrate in this season. But more immediately, right now, you may be online, tempted to multitask. You may be in the room with thoughts racing what else is going on as you enter into Christmas season. But I want to invite you to stop with me for half an hour right now as we lift our gaze in this series to look at the love of God. And as we contemplate God's love, it will change us and impact us. I want to start with an illustration today. So it's, uh, maybe it's tomorrow afternoon. You walk down your driveway to check the mail, and you get the mail, and you start looking through it, and one letter catches your eye. It looks pretty interesting, and so you're checking this out, and you start opening it up, standing on your driveway and reading the letter, and it turns out that it's from a lawyer. And as you're reading, you discover that your uncle has passed away, which is sad news to hear. And this is the attorney settling his estate. And then as you're looking through, you notice that there's a check in there. You go, wow. And have you ever held a big check before, like $1,000, $10,000? I'm sure we've all held a large check. And it's interesting that a piece of paper can signify so much value, right? But when you look down at this one, you gasp because it says $1 million. As you're reading through the note, it says your uncle had this successful business, but no more immediate family, and so he's given a huge portion of his estate to all these different charities that he loves, but also his nieces and his nephews, and he wants to send his love and bless you from his estate. And you're going, this changes everything. Your mind starts racing, and you go, I could pay off my house. You go, I'm going to write a check to my church. My pastor's going to do a backflip. This is going to be awesome. 
I get to be generous. And then you start thinking my kids or even my grandkids, I can pay for college debt-free for my family. This changes everything. But then you actually think back and you remember one time that this uncle caused some offense in you. And then you start going down this negative trail of thoughts and you go, why did he send me so much money? And then you start thinking about, you go, I think he's trying to manipulate me. And the anger starts building. And before you even realize what you're doing, you're going like this. And my question is, if you do that, will you receive the money? Of course, the answer is no. A check is just a piece of paper, isn't it? But it's an instruction to the bank to transfer funds when the recipient presents the intact check with a signature on the back. It's a two-way deal. If the check gets sent but then torn up, no value changes hands. So in our story, the uncle sent some love in the form of money, but it was rejected. Just like a check has to have a sender and a receiver, so does love. If love is sent or given and received, it builds a relationship. But if love is sent and then rejected, it breaks down the possibility of a relationship. What we do with love determines the direction of any relationship. And at Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that God sent the most radical gift of love the world had ever seen by sending his son to the world. So today we're going to be looking at the fact that the most important thing about your life, more than anything else, is whether you have received or rejected the love of God that has been sent your way, like a check in your mailbox, but so much more than that, from God. Jesus, who came as God with us, the ultimate gift from heaven. We're going to look at eyewitness testimony about this today. In fact, we're going to look at the most famous verse in the Bible. It's John 3.16. And as I say that, I know it it probably resonates, it ricochets in your mind because we've heard this verse before. Again, it's the most famous one that there is. It can almost feel like a cliche to some extent, and yet there's powerful gospel truth in it. And I believe it's worth our time to dig in with this verse today. You know, if you think about sports, say basketball, for example, who spends more time practicing their fundamentals shooting free throws? Would it be a middle school student who's learning to play basketball or a professional at the top of their game in the NBA? You might be tempted to say, well, you know, obviously the beginner is going to shoot more free throws, practice the fundamentals. But if you know much about sports, you know the answer is that the professional will spend more time honing their grasp of the fundamentals to stay at the top of their field. And so if we're going to be mature Christians, mature believers in Christ, we're actually going to spend a great deal of our time celebrating and diving deep in the fundamentals of our faith. And we're going to realize as we look at John 3.16 that there are deeper layers of meaning than you may have ever encountered before. And as we do that, we're going to actually look to my little friend over here. You may have wondered, what is this doing here? This is a nested doll. And there are nested layers of meaning underneath John 3.16. And so we're going to use this as our guide as we start looking together. So my goal today is that when you walk away, you'll have a deeper grasp of what's underneath and behind John 3.16 and how it signifies the love of God that started here at Christmas. So for quick context, John 3.16 very obviously is part of John's gospel in the third chapter. But you have four biographies of Jesus' life in your Bible, gospel biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And it's interesting, the first three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, really see the story of Jesus together. In fact, they're called the synoptic gospels. Syn, S-Y-N, as in together, and optic, as in how they see. So they see the story together. They tell many of the same stories and instances from Jesus' life. But the Gospel of John came latest out of the four Gospels that we have. Tradition tells us that John was an old man in the city of Ephesus, and at the urging of many of the disciples around him, they said, you got to write down your stories of Jesus so that we have them. He was the last living apostle when this took place. Churches were using the Synoptic Gospels, and these stories of Jesus' life were already well known. And so for John, it's kind of like... You can imagine being at a memorial service for someone that you loved with people who loved this person. And everybody's telling stories and remembering the things that this person did and said. And as you're listening, you're enjoying the conversation, but then you remember, oh, there's a couple stories you guys haven't mentioned yet. And you bring those to the table, and it brings color to the picture of this life that you're remembering together. That's what John did. Matthew, Mark, and Luke gave us this accurate, beautiful, saving sketch of the life of Jesus. But then John comes along several years later with paint and color and says, I'm going to bring this to life in a whole new way. So it's a beautiful gospel, one of the most loved books of the Bible. And the central idea, the reason that John wrote for us, he gives in the very first chapter, in verse 12. He said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. And so why did John sit down and do this, take the task of writing his gospel? It's so that the people in Ephesus, so that you, so that I could learn how that we can become children of God. That's an amazing thing. And then in his gospel, there's a most famous verse, and it's chapter 3, verse 16. And so I'm going to have us read this together. In fact, would you stand with me as we engage with God's word? I know that we could probably put on blindfolds and all recite this verse together and get it right because it's so familiar, but we're going to put it up on the screen and read it as a group. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you. You can be seated and I'm going to pray to kick us off. Father, we are so grateful for this verse, for the gospel of John and for your word. I pray for all of us here online in this room, for me, God, would you open our hearts to receive your love today. As we look into your word and the layers of meaning that you put there, would it wake something up inside of us, a passion for you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this verse is the heartbeat of the gospel. That's why it's so famous. And as we look at it, we can see it. It's almost like looking at the first layer of a nested doll. And this outer layer, this is a beautiful doll right here, and this is a beautiful verse in Scripture. What does it say? It says that God loves us. It says that He sent His Son, and the reason He did that is so that we can have eternal life. It's really good news. It's easy to skip over it because it's so familiar, but to actually stop and say, wait a minute, God really, really loves us. You, sitting in your chair, God loves you. He loves this world. That's fundamentally amazing and even countercultural news. In the ancient Near East, the part of the world where God began to reveal himself, where the Bible was written down, alternative stories of creation said that the gods made people as their slaves to take care of their work for them. 
There's no love from God if that's your worldview. I'm just a slave of the gods doing their work. In atheistic naturalism, if you don't believe that there's a God who put us here for a purpose, you're stuck trying to find your own purpose. And if you want to live a life of love or purpose, you got to kind of make it up, find your way, find your own truth. But we know how slippery that slope is going to be. There are other faiths where God has given us a list of rules to follow, and if we do the right things, say the right things, live the right way, we can earn his approval or his love. And yet it's only in the Christian faith that we see a God who loves us so deeply that he took the step, he took the initiative, he sent Jesus at Christmas, and the check is in our mailbox for more than a million dollars for eternal life. We just have to cash it and turn it in. So that's good news, and that's the first layer. But there's more here. So we're going to open this up, and we're going to look at the next layer of meaning in John 3.16. And our key to the second layer of meaning in this verse is actually found in the first three words of that famous statement. You know, when we hear, for God so loved the world, we typically hear something in our minds, something along the lines of, God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, right? That's, that's how we read that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's true, but it's a little bit incomplete if you're looking at the structure of the verse. The for God so means in this way. So it's like saying in this way God loved the world. And that Greek word is only ever used when it's linking to something that came before. And so you could think of it like in the way I've just described to you, God loved the world by sending his son. And so if we hear that, that's why we need a second layer to our doll, because we go, wait a minute, what came before? John 3.16 is unpacking whatever was said just before that. So we're going to look at those last two verses, and they come in a conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the highest-ranking Jewish religious teachers and officials in Jerusalem at the time. He had come to meet with Jesus to say, I want to understand, why are you here? What are you doing? What are you teaching Jesus? And Jesus was unpacking and explaining that. So John 3, 14 and 15. Let's put those up and I'll read them. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what does that say? It talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, right? And, and that truth right there, we hear in the first verse, God sent his Son so we can have eternal life. But now by looking deeper, it's not just that Jesus came. He came to fulfill a higher call, an ultimate purpose, and he actually gave his life up. He was lifted up as the Son of Man on the cross. And so the salvation he brings has something to do with that. But there's something else, and it's kind of weird in this verse, right? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What's going on with that? Now, John wrote his gospel primarily to fellow Jews. And if you were reading... And you were a Jew living in Ephesus 1,900 years ago. John's gospel is hot off the presses. The ink is dried and you're reading through. You would understand what he's saying. But we have to cross 1,900 years of history, cultural and geographic gaps to try and say what's going on with that story. And so now we need to do this one more time. We're going to open this up and say what's underneath in the next layer. Now, if you're looking at this nested doll and you know how these things work, you're going, okay... Um, how many are in there, and, and when is this going to stop? I'm going to tell you right now, there are more layers inside of here, but for the purpose of the sermon, a 10-layer sermon is not going to work very well. So we're done. 
So if you're with me for one more biblical excursion, we're going to say what's underneath John 3, 14 and 15, and what's going on with the serpent in the wilderness with Moses. And if we want to find that layer of meaning, we've got to go to the book of Numbers. It's near the beginning of the Bible, and the book of Numbers is the book about the wanderings of the people of God. After they were set free from slavery, but they hadn't made it to the promised land yet, they were wandering. And Numbers tells us many stories from that season. And if we started in chapter 1 and flipped our way along, we would find the story about the snakes in chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. So I'm going to read those for us now. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, so now we have the three layers of meaning, right? John 3.16, God sent his son so we can have eternal life. But it's not just that Jesus came, it's the fact that he sacrificed himself. He was lifted up. And when he was lifted up, there's another layer here. Jesus points back to the story from Numbers, where the people were being bitten by snakes. And somehow, we can connect these three layers together to get at what Jesus was saying. Here in the story we just read, from Moses and the people of Israel, the people have sinned against God, and they're getting a dramatic consequence for their sin. Many of them are dying right then and there. It's a serious situation. When John 3.16 says what it says, in this way God loved the world, it's talking about Moses lifting up the snake, the bronze snake before the people of Israel. We could kind of push all this together into a paraphrase like this. God loved the world in a way similar to Moses lifting up that snake in the wilderness to heal the people. God did this today by giving his son, so whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, Jesus is everywhere throughout the Old Testament. He's the figure that the stories point to, and he fulfills them. But here, remember, he's talking to Nicodemus, a very sophisticated, smart guy, wants to understand, Jesus, why are you here, who knows the scriptures very well. And Jesus could have pointed anywhere. And he pointed to this story in the book of Numbers to explain why he's here and what he's doing. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, he was saying to you and to me, look, you've been bitten by a snake. And when you look to Jesus, when you look to the Son of Man, you're like an Israelite, bitten by a snake, fearing for your life, desperately looking up. You catch that? Lifting our gaze like we're doing in this series to the one who has been lifted up. And we're saved Not because of any power inside of ourselves, but because God has miraculously given us a way of life and a way of escape. God lifted up a snake for them, but he lifted up his son on a cross for us. I want to show a short video from the series called The Chosen, and I love the way it takes us into this moment with Moses as he prepares the bronze snake. So this is three minutes, let's take a look, and then we'll continue.
Joshua, how many more in the night? Some 300, sir. Where will you bury them? Men are trying to dig a trench, but the ground is hard and rocky. With respect, Moses, my concern is not for the dead, but for the dying. Hundreds fall by the day, and for every serpent we kill, another ten appear. Maybe we should leave the bodies here, in this tent. At the rate people are dying, there would not be enough room, even if we stack them to the top. Then we'll have to leave and find someplace else. I'm not leaving anytime soon. Too many people are sick and cannot walk. After today, the only Hebrews too sick to walk will be those who choose to remain so. Is there medicine in that bronze? You told the people that you would ask God to forgive their rebellion, to heal their serpent wounds. I did. Then why are you hiding in a tent? It wasn't my idea, Joshua. That is a pagan symbol. You did not ask him if you were sure? Maybe you misunderstood him. I've learned to do what he says without questioning. You remember what happened at Meribah. Just to be sure, we could send a messenger to Eziongib or beg for aid. That pole. Hand me that pole. say it is a cruel joke. Let them say that. Help me understand. None of this makes any sense. How do you explain the Red Sea? The man in the coil? The pillar of fire? Joshua, any Israelite who looks upon this bronze serpent and believes in the power of Adonai will be healed. It's an act of faith. Not reason. All right, did you notice the cross-shaped pole that they used to hold the snake? I love this clip because the producers of this show get the prefigurement of Jesus and what he would do, like he references in the Gospel of John. Moses says it's an act of faith, not reason. How can a snake on a pole heal people of a snake bite? How can a man crucified in ancient Israel save you or me and give us eternal life? They could be healed, but they had to look at that lifted up snake, and you and I can be saved and healed, but we have to look at and receive what Jesus has done. God's given a very specific way to be saved. You know, it's really interesting to think about this. You heard them talking about the situation they faced with the snakes, and and if we were in the place of God and we were trying to decide how how can I reveal myself and, and provide healing to the people who've cried out to me, there's lots of solutions, right? You could have the snakes all miraculously die or, or just go away. You could give, tell the men to get machetes and give them success in their snake hunting. You could send in hawks to get the snakes. That would be pretty neat, I think. But God had them lift up a snake to solve the problem with snakes. And then if you fast forward, mankind has an ancient problem with sin. There's something broken on the inside of humanity 
Men are corrupted, and to solve the problem that exists with men, God sent a man. That's the gift of Christmas, that Jesus was God, but came, became a man. And then that perfect and holy man was lifted up on a cross to solve the problem that exists with mankind. It's the highest love that's ever been sent or received, is the love of God that we celebrate in this time. So, you know, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus by referencing this story, and again, he's saying to you and to me, there is, in fact, a venom that courses through your veins as humans. You are snake-bitten. We can all feel it even during the Christmas season, can't we? There's presents to buy. There's people to see. We feel the regret of missing those that we've lost. The plans never come together perfectly. We're trying to get the right time off. And in the stress of all that, we often even snap at each other. And what should be this great holiday time full of bliss and joy can become darker or more difficult or full of conflict and sadness. This is true in our lives as well. We start out in life seeing the promise of what could be, but we get off the path. We experience the brokenness. We feel the sadness that exists inside of us. Somehow, we know we were made for more, but something broken inside of us keeps us from reaching out and touching that. Paul says it really clearly and well in the third chapter of Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus says, yeah, you're all, it's true, you're headed for death due to the snake bite. But as you look to me, as you look to Jesus, who's been lifted up as God's provision, God's way of salvation, that venom is taken away from your system. It's neutralized. You're brought back to life into eternal life with God. So the deal in front of us today is that the check from your uncle is in the mailbox, but it's more than a million dollars. It is eternal life. It is adoption as sons and daughters of God into his family forever, available right now. I believe that God is drawing everyone to himself, and he may be drawing you today. Maybe you've been kind of on the borders or the outside of church life. Maybe you've heard John 3.16 37 times before, and yet you've never taken the step to look up to the man on the cross and say, I want the healing that's been offered to me. He's the Son of God, and he has come to save us. My question is, would you tear up the check today, or would you cash it in? So God's offer is on the table. If you have never looked to Jesus on the cross, he came as a baby. It's the joy of Christmas, but he accomplished his work when he sacrificed himself. And if you'd like to learn about that step online, you can chat. We have people there who would love to respond and say, what does it mean to look to Jesus and how can I follow him with my life? If you're in the room, we have prayer room in the back or you'll find people with orange lanyards on your way out and just ask that question. I want to do what that guy was talking about. I want to look to Jesus on the cross. I want the venom out of my system. How do I do that? And they would love to connect you with someone who can guide you through that process. For many of us, we enter into Christmas time having received that love. We've received the gift. The million dollars has been cashed. It's in our bank account. And again, you know I'm not talking about money, but something better. Eternal life has been given to us. We've been made sons and daughters of the King of Kings. But what do we do if we're living in light of that reality here in Christmas season? Well, Jesus gave us a clue in the 15th chapter of John. So later in John's gospel, we have these words recorded in verse 9. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
And as you look at that verse, when Jesus says, so have I loved you, the the grammar there indicates a completed action. He's saying the job is done, like he said on the cross, it is finished. I've loved you, the check is in your mailbox, all you have to do is cash it, live in light of the reality of what you've received, or like we're saying in this series, here in this Advent season, lift your gaze, look and meditate on the love of God and live in light of it, and it will change you and shape you through the power of the Holy Spirit that you've received as a follower of Christ. And you know, if we have received that love, if that's been part of our story, one of the things that we're called to do in that joy is to share it with others. We've had a couple of messages here from this stage about how to do that recently. One very tactical thing you can do that, of course, we've been encouraging is as we look forward to the Christmas services on Christmas Eve, it's such an easy invitation. You know, in our culture, it's not as common to go to church anymore, is it? And yet at Christmas time, everyone has a cultural memory of church. And so if you have a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, it's as easy as saying, hey, my church has a Christmas service. It's actually Christmas Eve, two o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock. I'm going. Would you like to come? We could sit together. They can come and hear this proclamation of the gospel from Pastor Gus. And you may be handing somebody a check for a million dollars without even knowing it. And by the way, if they say no, they'll be glad that you thought of them. And so the pressure is off to just say, come and join me in church on Christmas Eve. But I hope this message today has given you a sense of awe and worship. Every time you hear John 3.16 right here, you'll hear the verse, but you'll hear something deeper. You'll hear it's not only that, but it's that the Son of Man was lifted up a deeper layer of meaning, but not only that, all the way back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, that story about the snakes and how we can be healed like the Israelites were healed by the one who was lifted up. But to close out our time of engaging with the Bible today, I want to go to the next couple of verses that follow John 3.16. So in light of these layers of meaning that we've just built together, what can we see in what comes next? So John 3.17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Saying that whoever does not believe in what Jesus has done stands condemned. You know, if we go back as an analogy to our our story, the third layer, the book of Numbers, You can imagine an Israelite who's been bitten by a snake. They're in great pain. They're afraid for their life. They've seen others die. And then someone comes along and says, hey, 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 Moses just put up this snake on a pole. It's a couple hundred yards that way. If you walk over and look at the snake, you'll be healed. You'll be okay. In fact, a couple of my friends have done it, and they're dancing. They're so happy. And this person hears them say that and says, that's so stupid. How can a snake on a pole do anything for me? Do you see how much pain I'm in? Do you see the mess that I'm in? I don't need something lifted up on a pole. I need a doctor. If you know a doctor, send him my way. But that's ridiculous, and I'm not interested in whatever thing Moses has going on over there. They wanted salvation their way, but rejected salvation God's way, and they died and stand condemned. It's the same for us. God has lifted up the Son of Man and said, this is my way of salvation. But there's only one doorway into the kingdom of heaven, and that doorway runs right through Jesus Christ, God's Son, who He lifted up and glorified. 
If we reject Jesus but try to find God some other way along some other path, God says we stand condemned. I already opened the door. You just have to walk through it. In one of the first sermons preached after Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came down and empowered the apostles, Peter was proclaiming the gospel. Many people were saved in response to this sermon. And he presents the gospel, the good news that we can be saved, but he also says this in Acts 3.23, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, that's Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. He's saying, look, we've all got this venom coursing through us. We're all headed for death because of the curse that exists within our humanity, how we've rebelled against God. But you can be healed. But listen, if you reject it, you're going to face destruction. So as we reflect on this love of God, I want to close with a story. Last month, I had the unique privilege of of going to Kenya and then to Egypt as part of my work with the McClellan Foundation. Uh, to see the way the gospel is impacting lives out in the world. And we went way outside Nairobi into the Rift Valley of Kenya, uh, into the traditional land of the Maasai people. And I met some new friends there, and these friends of the Maasai people were first-generation Christians. And it really struck me in a powerful way that, you know, we live in a Christianized society. And so the values of of America, the values of Western society are built on Christianity. And and of course, we see how that's challenged and that can change over time. And yet, the fundamental things we celebrate morally and the dignity of human life and all these things, they're built on the Christian faith. But for these people, Christianity was new, and so the norms and values of the Christian faith were radical. For example, there had been no ambition in previous generations to tame or cultivate the earth to build a healthy and prosperous future. They had mud homes this high. You couldn't even stand up in them. The cows ran free, and if you needed to use the bathroom, well, there's the field over there, so good luck. Find a spot. Try to stay clean. But this new generation that had become Christians, they had an understanding rooted in God's word and the love of God that God has put us here as stewards of the earth to cultivate and build a healthy and prosperous life. And so it's taken away the sense of fatalism. They're building these homes that have a couple different rooms in them. You can stand up. They have windows to let in the light. They've put in pit latrines, which is like an outhouse, which is a massive upgrade to the hygiene situation that their families were living in. They're planting trees and thinking 10, 20 years into the future to harvest time and how they can bless their children even as they they invest in the future. So that's amazing, isn't it? But Jesus does even more than that. I want to share a picture of one of my friends with his beautiful daughter. I fell in love with this little girl in her bright yellow dress and got to know this man and a dozen of his friends. And you see, traditionally, this people group would have practiced a form of mutilation of their little girls. They would marry off their daughters, often as child brides. And then once married, a woman had the status of cattle had to follow behind the men, could only speak when spoken to, and if you were beaten by your husband, there's no recourse. That's just the way things are. But there was a change happening. And as I stood there, under the African sun, miles from the closest village, this man and a dozen of his friends were telling us in Swahili, through a translator, what Jesus Christ has meant in changing their view. They said, in past generations... The women were not treated so well, but our faith in Jesus helps us be ones to make a change. We even see our wives as partners. We see their value. They can build the future together with us. No more beating the women. 
No more mutilation or child brides for their little girls. This little girl right there has hope because of a culture change that grows directly out of the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her father embraces faith in Jesus and her life changes forever. That's the power of what Jesus Christ has done. So friends, yeah, praise God, praise God. I'll never forget that time with them and the reminder that God's love came down. He came as a baby and he lived his life here showing us the love of God and what it means and it transforms us. And my prayer today is that we would receive that love. It would change us and we would change our community, our church family, Central Florida, and to the ends of the earth like the story we just heard. So Marsh is going to lead us through one more song. I'm telling you, it was powerful to hear that worship before. And so let's do one more song together and embrace the gospel truth that God came as love for you and me. Thank you, church.